Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're spending the full hour with the Mass Politics Profs to talk through some of the biggest issues before the 2018 midterms. After months of a bitter debate pitting nurse against nurse, a new poll suggests a slim majority intends to vote no on ballot question one. This follows a revamped campaign push from opponents of question one who say setting limits on the number of patients a nurse can care for at one time could lead to staffing shortages and other unintended consequences. And a staffing shortage may also be partly to blame for the deadly Merrimack Valley explosions. Will that motivate Massachusetts lawmakers to push through emergency legislation now to fix it? They did after the Las Vegas shooting, passing legislation last year to ban bump stocks. With the midterms just weeks away, will lawmakers be able to take advantage of this policy window? Later in the show... Dear young people... Don't vote. Don't vote. Everything's fine the way it is. On from ice cream vendors to rideshare companies, unconventional get-out-the-vote efforts have sprung up inspired by these high-stakes elections. Here to bring us their perspectives and analysis, three of the contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. Joining me from our satellite studio here at the Boston Public Library are Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Welcome back, Aaron. Pleased to be here. Peter Rubistasio, the founding dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Stonehill College and an Associate Professor of Political Science. Hello again, Peter. Thanks for having me. And joining us for the first time, Rob DeLeo, one of the newest contributors to the Mass Politics Profs and an assistant professor of public policy at Bentley University. Welcome, Rob. Happy to be here. I'm glad to have all of you. Let's dive into what is absolutely one of the most confusing <laughs> ballot questions ever. I, I, you know, you all are the one with the long look back over time, so maybe I'm exaggerating, but it feels to me that this is so confusing all the way around. And I'm not sure there's anything will be achieved at the end of it. I mean, there will be a vote. So let me just say this, uh, two uh, most recent things. Uh, Governor Baker has come out against ballot question one. That would be to vote on behalf of the nurses who say they absolutely need some limits about how many nurses should be uh, assigned per patient. Um, also, that's they didn't come out against it, but they're just making a statement, so you know. Insurers have said premiums definitely will rise. Um, and this follows on the heels of a report by the Health Policy uh, Commission saying, um, it, it, by our calculations, the cost of implementing this would be $900 million. Very different from what the supporters of question one say. They say it is in the range of $47 million. So with all that, <laughs> There's much more we can say. I'd first like to get your take on um, question one and how you think it leaves voters. And then, I, brought more broadly, I also want to address just ballot questions addressing these kinds of issues. 
Peter, I'll start with you. Well, sure. I mean, I think that the, the ballot question itself isn't that confusing. I think what's confusing in the mind of voters is that it seems nurses are both for and against it. And so, you know, I know in driving around uh, my town, when you're particularly near certain kinds of healthcare facilities, there's a, a big sign that says, uh, vote, nurses vote yes and nurses vote no. And so the, the, the opponents of it have very skillfully used uh, what I would suggest are rather deceitful tactics to suggest that nurses and nurses' unions are by and large opposed to this. I think that has left voters confused because if, if they're sensing that the folks on the front lines of this issue are against it, then it would seem natural that voters might be against it as well. And so I don't think Charlie Baker's opposition is going to inflame this because voters are tilting in that direction, I think in part because of the tactics that are being used here. So just to be clear, because we just have to keep saying this because it is confusing, mm -hmm. it's the Massachusetts Nurses Association, which is a union representing about a quarter of all nurses in, in the state who are in favor of this. Yeah. It's a little bit loosely based on a law already in existence in California. Um, we also already have in place certain limits uh, in intensive care units. So if you go into the intensive care unit, there are a number of nurses that must be there all times. They're saying this should happen in every other aspect of care because if it doesn't happen, then you, the patient, may have a nurse or I, maybe the nurse gets pulled off to something else or two other something else's because there is no mandatory requirement that there be a certain number at once. On the other side are pretty much, to Peter's point, uh, executives and administrators who some will say in the ads, hey, I, I'm a nurse too, I was a nurse, but they've uh, ascended to administration and or executive level, and that's different from the bedside nurses, for the most part, who are on the yes side. So, Erin. Well, first off, yeah. it is it, it's wildly confusing, and you just you had to talk for two minutes to yes. explain it. <laughs> I mean, we get paid to do politics. You love politics, and it's confusing. So I don't think voters should feel remotely bad for finding it so confusing. Um, I think one of the most telling things that you just said is it's definitely um, the bedside nurses versus nurse administrators. But if you trace the money in terms of, as Peter was saying, the very effective ads, yes on one, no on one, and it just says nurses. The nurses that are in the ads on the no are not the nurses that are funding. It's the mm -hmm. hospital administrators, um, it's some insurers, but especially hospital administration is putting together those ads and so if it looks like on paper nurses are for or against their split, it makes sense that a lot of voters say, well, I don't want to pay more. But it is a false equivalency. Nurses aren't split. Bedside nurses very much want this, and those who have gone the administrative route don't. And mm -hmm. so part of this is it's a terrible way to legislate, mm -hmm. or you know, none of us know enough about hospital staffing to be voting on it, mm -hmm. uh, but we are. Um, so I think voters are in a really difficult position there, but the advertising has been wildly misleading, and we've seen a real shift from early September. Um, the yes side was up about 10. Right. Now they're down about 10, and a lot of that has to do with a very well-orchestrated campaign with a lot of money. I mean, hospitals have a lot of money to say no on this. Uh, $12 million has been spent, yeah. by the way, on the, no, on the no side. Go ahead, Rob. Yeah, I, I, I really I couldn't agree with Aaron anymore on this. This is a, a, a terrible way to make policy. This, this particular initiative really underscores, in my mind, the difficulties with reducing such an incredibly complex technical policy area to a, to a ballot question. And in my mind, this was really a, a missed opportunity 
for, mm -hmm. for the state legislature in some respects. If you were to ask me, what's the one policy area where Massachusetts has truly been a laboratory for democracy over the last 20 to 30 years? I would say healthcare. I mean, we were the state mm, that, that first launched a near universal health insurance program. It was the model for the ACA. We have a policy community that's shown time and time again that it can build consensus on these issues. And so I, I, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to imagine that that community could have come together and, and gotten it right with nursing ratios. Um, Unfortunately, it seems the legislature wasn't willing to act quickly enough, and, and, and now we're going captured. to initiative, and they're captured. And I'm not sure that that consensus will be possible after such a contentious uh, ballot initiative debate. Mm -hmm. So given what, uh, everything that you all have said, what happens either way? What happens yes? What happens no, given that there's so much confusion and uh, I, I, you know, insurance are, insurers are saying, you can forget it, you know, and right. Governor Baker's opposing all of that. I mean, on yeah. some yeah. level, I think it's incredibly bipartisan to say, I do not want an overworked nurse working on me, yeah. working on my friends <laughs> yeah. and family. Like, yeah. that is about as bipartisan as it gets. Yeah. So I think if the nursing ratio issue were to remain, you know, right now it looks like it's going to be defeated. I think the challenge, as we were just starting to talk about, is that Beacon Hill is largely captured by those big hospital interests. And I don't mean that they're, you know, writing legislation that is incredibly favorable towards them, though I might, um, but more importantly, they're just not taking up these issues. They're not doing work on it. That's why the Massachusetts Nurses Association had to go to the ballot. So I think if it's yes, then it will go through. Implementation will be difficult. If it's no, unfortunately, I think that will be what sticks. Um, the Massachusetts Nurses Association has sort of put all their money in on the, or not money, all their chips yeah. in on this. Yeah, and I, I'm wondering if we'll lose a lot of nurses. Um, I, I just don't know where, it just feels to me that it's uh, more than some other ballot questions that has long lingering effects. Well, that, to me, uh, yeah, yeah. sorry, go no, ahead. No, no, I think that, that um, I think what will happen is if the, the yes position loses, that it will stall momentum moving forward and there'll be another reason for the legislature not to take it up because mm -hmm. clearly political momentum is not there. I think it does demonstrate the, the, often the, the assumption that going to the ballot is, and you're, when you prevail, you, you might dig in your heels and not continue to negotiate in the legislature. And so I worry that the SM1 people were far too confident in, in their ability to go to the polls, to go to the ballot initiative, and to get public approval. They, they may not only lose the initiative, but it may stall any kind of renegotiation on these terms moving forward. And even if, and even if they do succeed, despite what the poll numbers suggest, I think it's important to note that we now have this pattern in this state of this sort of iterative policy-making process in the wake of ballot initiatives. So we saw this with recreational marijuana where the ballot initiative passes and then regulatory agencies in the state legislature try to, for lack of a better term, soften the blow for certain yeah. stakeholders. Mm. So even if this were to pass, I would be shocked if the legislature or at the very least the Public Health Commission doesn't adopt some sort of regulatory policy um, to 
make things a little bit easier for small community hospitals and places like BMC because they're really going to be hurting it. And I think the yes nurses have, that's a real mistake on their part. Yeah. None of their advertising has said, this isn't perfect, but we can get it right after. Mm. You know you don't want an overworked nurse. We can get this ready after. I haven't seen any advertising that makes that point. Yeah, and, and one final thing. I actually think the, the, the opponent's usage of, of nurses in their advertising, I think that's actually a very risky campaign on their part. V voters don't like to feel like they're duped. And I think the cat is out of the bag in terms of who the uh, American Nurses Association. I don't know is. that. I don't know that everybody knows that. Well, there is a you there know. is a few I blog posts on mass politics. <laughs> We're talking about it right yes, here, so I'm assuming a few more people are going to know about it if they don't already. I guess what I'm so. saying is, if I see you in the ad, you yeah. know, just call me mm -hmm. dumb, yeah. and you're wearing a set of scrubs, which actually the Massachusetts Nurses Association representative said <laughs> that person is not a nurse. Yeah. He's dressed up in right. scrubs. No, I'm not expecting that. Yeah. Just, just call yeah. me naive. Right. I'm expecting you to be in the scrubs appropriately Absolutely. in the ad. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, no, I feel like it's the kind of thing people are, it's a little resonance, but they're going to find out after the fact. Yeah. Uh, because people, you know, people just aren't digging that much in. Voters have a lot going on. So, yeah, I'm in agreement. I don't think most voters know, though I do yeah. think, you know, you know, uh, political elites who spend all their time doing this have figured it out. But to our original point, it took a while. I was confused. Sure. I was yeah. like, I don't know. If nurses yeah. are disagreeing, then what do I do? Yeah. Um, and just one other point. Uh, the yes people um, who want the mandatory requirements say the, they are questioning the transparency of the Health Policy Commission right. and the 900 million figure that they came up with mm -hmm. saying, um, you know, there, there's more to the story here and we just don't know about it. And also that the executives that are fighting us can well afford to institute yeah. this because they have big salaries, yeah. they have, um, they're expanding buying up hospitals, but that money is not going to supporting the working nurses. Mm -hmm. Any response to that? Does that? No, I think yeah. that's right. And I mean, so much of the no argument is, you know, one of the arguments is, you know, you're gonna go into the ER and they're, they're, they're gonna be turned away or gonna be turned away at a particular floor. Well, that argument only works if they don't choose to hire more nurses, yeah. right? And right. so like, I know, I, I'm not an economist, I'm a political <laughs> science, but I know a little bit about supply and demand. You pay them a little more, um, and you put more people on the shift, then guess what? That's not going to happen. Now, those cost numbers, as our inner methodologist, is like my heart's beating fast because it's like we're questioning the methodology. I think that's a very fair argument, but it's supply and demand at root. Mm -hmm. um, guessing now, yes or no, it'll pass or no? No. Well, you know, I, 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 it looks to me like it won't, but I, you mentioned Charlie Baker. Elizabeth Warren's taking the other that is position. Correct. So I guess I'm wondering how much she's going to make this an issue and if she's going to try to make this a rallying point. Uh, it seems likely that she's going to prevail. So does she, does she really you know, attach herself to that? I, I don't know. I think that has the potential to change some of the polling, but we're awfully close and the momentum is not on the yes side. Yeah, she's uh, positioning it as a working person's right. argument. Like I'm standing with the nurses because they're working people and that's right. my whole argument is that working people need to be uh, thought of as we're making all these decisions, so. Pretty smart for 2020. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. All right, well, let me, let me move to uh, another uh, policy issue. And, and I should say that, uh, Rob DeLeo, this is, this is your bailiwick. You, you raised this um, of Bentley. 
that the Merrimack Valley explosions and what happened there exposing the lack of uh, skilled uh, field inspectors, for one, a kind of underwhelming infrastructure and some other issues uh, have really led, to a, led us to a place that we're not just looking at what happened and how it's going to get fixed, but is there a long-term solution that should be uh, really at the legislature once again? That's, that's your argument. In, in, indeed. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so let me backtrack a little bit. When I, when I think of disasters in a political context, I think of a disaster as a, a learning opportunity. And what I mean by that is disasters provide an impetus for us to go back and revisit existing rules, revisit existing legislation, revisit existing laws, and make a determination as to whether or not those laws are keeping us safe. Now, as I see it, we're, we're at a crossroads with respect to learning after Merrimack. Uh, on the one hand, I think most policymakers, certainly in the immediate aftermath of the event, were quite content to place all the blame at the doorstep of Columbia Gas, uh, highlighting their negligence, their inability to respond, safety record, their, their all of safety that. record, all of those things. And I think those criticisms are fair, and I think they're needed, and I think they're totally justified. But that narrative isn't going to result in policy learning. Policy learning is going to require that we do all those things that you just discussed, whether that's considering reform at DPU, whether that's revisiting our 150-year-old natural gas infrastructure, whether that's also beginning to have a dialogue about how, what types of energy we use to heat our homes. That's policy learning in my mind. Now, should policymakers choose path number two? real policy learning, um, they're going to need to act quickly because the mandate of Merrimack is going to wane pretty quickly. Um, I think once the general election is in full swing, it's going to be difficult to mobilize support around this issue. And there could be a lot of change coming to the state legislature. So who knows what their priorities are going to be in the next session. Well, I want to uh, play a clip from uh, Mayor Daniel Rivera. This is the day after the explosions. And he was pretty mad about what had not happened. When we first got word of this incident, the least informed and the last to act has been Columbia Gas. We have tried to no avail to give Columbia Gas the space and the traction, the, uh, the time to affect the coherent plan. I think we're about at hour 23 on this. And none of these is clear to anyone. So uh, Daniel Rivera was just saying that, you know, there was no, nothing to give them any guidance about what was going to happen, what happened, and where to go forward. And I will say, I remember looking up at the television monitor and seeing the first note that said it was going to be November 19th mm -hmm. before all these people were back online. Now, I'm not a nurse, and none of us are nurses, <laughs> but we all are likely or could be victims of a gas explosion. So that, to me, says, Aaron and Peter, because mm -hmm. uh, Rob has weighed in, that um, a policy around infrastructure and some kind of reform should not have waning interest because it's very scary to think about this happening again. Well, I, you know, I think, I think that you're right, uh, but, it, but I think that it will anyway because the further we move away from the issue, the, the less it resonates for, for policymakers. Uh, you're, you're exactly right that we could all be victims of 
uh, an explosion that might be the result of, of a lack of investment in infrastructure. Uh, but until those moments hit us, we tend to not be thinking that's the most important issue that I, as a citizen, face. It's now maybe the most important issue that citizens of Lawrence and Andover, North Andover face. But for the rest of the state, I just don't think it is, it is penetrated in quite the same way. So I think Rob's exactly right. You know, it will take time to develop a policy regime in this area. And, and you know, quite frankly, it, it's ripe for certain policymakers to try and nurture this. It would be uh, the kind of thing uh, a governor who's somewhat cautious but could use a bit of, of uh, uh, reform uh, or, or could, could use something to really make a stand on how he wants to move the state in a certain direction, a more modern uh, direction. This is the kind of thing that the governor could nurture uh, if he's reelected. Uh, but the further we go, the less likely it's going to motivate people to, to act quickly. And, and That's my guest, Peter Rupertaccio. Um, he is the founding dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Stonehill College and an associate professor of political science. Erin O'Brien of UMass Boston. Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I think where this could have real lasting resonance, because it, you know, people adapt in the sort of, that couldn't happen to me, mm -hmm. right? Rather than lobby my legislature, legislature or get after the governor, when you saw those explosions, we're different here. Like, that's sort of a natural political reaction. It's a stupid one, but it's one we all typically have. But I think th th those explosions and those fires in those people's homes and that it happened in a very affluent community and less affluent community, like, that helps for political resonance is on future projects. Mm. I'm thinking of things like the compressor station on the South Shore mm. is wildly controversial. I happen to live not too, too far from that area. And all of a sudden, if it looked this, Right, so these other future projects or projects that are controversial, whether that these things could go and say, it happened in Andover, we can't even get existing projects, right? Why would you bring this into these highly populated neighbors or neighborhoods? So I think existing energy projects that are controversial, especially gas lines, fracking, any of those things have, um, uh, unfortunately, really powerful political footage to say, you want your home burning? I don't think so. Massachusetts couldn't get it right. They couldn't get them back online for several months. And now you trust them to come into your community? I'll write the ad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I didn't know it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. All right. So disaster may actually motivate and longer and, and, and keep up the interest in it longer than we think, even though some of you feel that it may wane the interest in it. I personally think it's, this is not going to. If for no other reason, they're still digging in those people's uh, roads and will be, you know, well past the mm -hmm. midterm elections. Yep. So if I didn't need a reminder, I'd get one when I went to cast my ballot and I thought about it again. Right. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, Baker got you like 27% in yeah. Lawrence, but he got over 60 in Andover and North Andover. Yeah, so, and, and Rivera is a supporter of his, yep. a Democratic supporter yes. of his, so there's a lot riding for everyone. All right, well, let me switch to some of the um, hostility, shall we say, <laughs> um, and tension going on as we lead into these midterm elections. Um, I would suggest that it was already fomenting, but it really sort of kicked up to levels unknown uh, in the wake of the Brent Kavanaugh hearings, uh, discussion, sexual assault accusations, all of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to start with you, Aaron. <laughs> Where does that leave us as we go into midterms. People are saying there's an equal amount of energy from Republicans and Democrats, but there's whole lots of people who don't identify with either party. 
I mean, I think at least, uh, I mean, it's been a rough couple weeks, right? <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, for a lot of people, it's been a rough 23 months, and then it was a rough campaign season. And so I, I think this just adds to the political turmoil, the way in which we feel so wildly disconnected from one another, not in just a disconnected, like, I deplore you if you're on the other side, and bad word choice, but like, yeah. I dislike you uh, on the other side. And I think those Kavanaugh hearings just, um, just made all the more clear how divided Americans are. In terms of their electoral impact, I'm someone who thinks they'll have very little electoral impact. Oh, okay. Because it's like they put hot sauce in like a crazy stew already. Um, so that there's just, everything's already boiling so much that those people who were mad watching the Kavanaugh hearings and the response to it uh, were already quite mobilized because there's been many other pretty ugly incidents. And those that feel that, uh, you know, Trump and the Republican Party are um, unfairly, you know, picked out and things like that, that just added fuel to their fire. But I, so I don't think it mobilizes new people. It just it is a stark reminder of how divided we are and how differently we see the same political event. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are three of the mass politics profs, Erin O'Brien of UMass Boston, you just heard her, Peter Rubitaccio of Stonehill College, and Rob DeLeo of Bentley University. They are all contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. And this entire hour, we're discussing the 2018 midterms and other political news. Um, Peter, pick up from that, if you would, um, because take Aaron's point, but at the same time, I, I, I'm hearing, for example, as a way of motivating people to the polls, some Democrats saying, get us in there, we're going to take over the House, and then we're impeaching Brent Kavanaugh. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing we're going to do, which I don't know is such a smart thing to say, um, or whether that even, I think they should just be left alone personally, but, uh, but it's being said by some, and so it says to me it's still in the mix. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I think Aaron is right that that in watching how all this unfolded, I got the sense that everyone watching has retreated to the comfort of their tribe as a result, and that people's minds weren't changed. Uh, independents didn't suddenly rush to the Democratic Party, and Republicans didn't become Democrats, and people just retreated to to their base and. I, it, it, the, the ugliness that we saw is not likely to abate. Republicans realize that they can generate some enthusiasm among their base, which had been decidedly unenthused uh, going into this midterm uh, by coming down hard on, uh, in favor of Kavanaugh. So um, what about the fact that I've heard from a lot of Republican um, analysts that it brought home all the Republicans? Right. That, well, that people that disagreed home. with the president or, right. you know, are, were feeling isolated all came together, even though they don't normally agree on many other topics. Uh, Republican activists really despise people like Mitch McConnell. When Mitch McConnell walked across the, the I guess it was the East Room of the White House, uh, he got a standing ovation. I think that it really did unify the Republican Party and it gave them some energy. Now, I don't know that it will, will last. I mean, we know just historically, the first midterm of a presidential election is harmful to the president's party. And uh, while we expect that might happen on steroids under this president, I'm not sure that it will, because we, we live in such a tribal moment. Um, I suspect that you know Democrats are very good at forgetting that reactions or actions have a reaction. So if, if they're going to make in the impeachment of the new justice 
a, a call in this election, that is going to spur Republicans, and it will spur them to turn out in some of those really tough races. We see, for example, that the incumbent senator from North Dakota, it looks like she is not... Heidi Heitkamp. She looks mm -hmm. like she's in a really tough position. Yeah. I don't imagine a national campaign to impeach Brett Kavanaugh is going to help her chances at all. That doesn't make it illegitimate. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't do it. But it seems more likely today than it did to me three or four weeks ago that the Republicans will retain control of the Senate after mm -hmm. this election. Okay. Rob? Well... Of course, when we talk about Republicans coming home, we're, we're, this is conjecture at this point. We yeah. don't necessarily have anything to predict how this is going to play out over the course of the few last few weeks. Um, what we do know is there's a lot of uh, energy within the progressive wing of the, the Democratic Party, though. And that's not conjecture. That's based on what we saw in this particular primary season. I think this only fuels that energy more and will we'll, we'll continue to propel um, that, that particular uh, segment of the Democratic Party forward. So before we leave the Kavanaugh uh, hearings, um, Aaron, you had an interesting uh, thought looking at just everything that happened, and you wondered why sort of women were being jumped on, but Republican men oh, seem yeah. to go unscathed. Yeah, this drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, Susan Collins obviously gave her speech. Mm -hmm. I guess that was last week, last, or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. and, and so anyways, she's giving that speech. And in a lot of circles, uh, a lot of progressive Democratic circles on campus just talking to students, Susan Collins is a traitor. Susan Collins is the worst. When are we mobilizing to take Susan Collins? I'm like, you know, if you like your health care, you better be happy Susan Collins is around. And so I don't think she's any more culpable than every other Republican senator that voted for Kavanaugh. And there's a real irony. It's not an um, irony that's difficult to see, that the, the person being blamed for putting a Supreme Court justice in with a credible allegation of sexual assault, though alleged, right? They're then blaming the woman for that. And so I, th that just speaks to me to the difficulty of being uh, a woman in politics at the most elite levels. I, I think she is wildly culpable. She is no more culpable than every other senator that voted that way. I, I would only add that um See, she was never truthful about her stance. That's the thing that drives everybody crazy. Well, the, it's come just I, woman up and say, right. "This is this is my guy. Well I'm supporting him." That's yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's like you know? logic you know? 101. I believe her, but it wasn't him. We well, right. don't believe her. Exactly. Right? Like, the, the, and that's your opinion, and that's fine. Right. Just, but just well, woman you up can't and say have it. it both ways. Exactly. No, but a, a number of Republican senators said that. She just said it with the biggest microphone. Right. And because nobody, I mean, everybody knew Jeff Flake was never going to, you know, change right. his vote. So that was that was never happening. Mm -hmm. um, even though he talked a good game. It wouldn't even question her. Right. Right. Uh, All right. So uh, added to that, then moving just a little bit aside on a more positive note is this the year of the woman. The last time this happened with Anita Hill, the next year, lots of women. Uh, there are lots of women running all across the country. There are women running here in, our, in Massachusetts, running hard, bigger numbers than we've ever seen. What are we going to see on during the midterms? Is it going to pay off? We've already seen some payoff in Massachusetts mm -hmm. with Ayanna Presley, for example. But just wondering if that so much hype, Rob, or is something really going to happen here? Oh, no, it's, it's, it's not hype at all. And, and what I would add there is these women, they're, they're the torchbearers for the progressive movement in this state. 
So obviously we can talk about people like Ayanna Presley, Rachel Rollins as being important figureheads, but if you dig deeper and look at endorsements by progressive Massachusetts in this election cycle, uh, more than half of those candidates are women. And so I think that speaks to the fact that these are candidates who are doing an incredibly effective job at communicating the progressive agenda. So I don't think it's hype at all, I, not remotely. I, I completely agree. I mean, I think it was going to be uh, the year of the woman before the, the, the Kavanaugh hearings because a lot of the momentum uh, and the reaction to the Trump White House was happening over the course of the past you know, 20 months. And so we saw in primaries all across the country that uh, women were becoming the, a driving force in electoral outcomes uh, before this. I think this will have an impact, as, as Rob suggests. I would also say that, there, you know, that, that in some ways, the Republicans are continue to lag, but there are going to be some new Republican faces right. that will be women as well. And so we're starting, we're, I think we're seeing this across the board. Republicans are always behind. Uh, but they have been traditionally. I think there are limits. You know, I think that it would be a great surprise to me if Texas sends a Democrat to mm -hmm. the White House on behalf of all, or to the Senate. I mean, a woman Democrat or just a, a Democrat? Well, period. Democrat. Yeah, yeah, in right. Texas you mean better or in my mind yes, rather right, okay. unthinkable, despite yes, all of the right. the uh, press that Beto O'Rourke mm -hmm. is getting. Uh, it, there's a really uh, impressive Democratic candidate for governor in Georgia, but still, these are these are hard. Pushes. These are Republican states, and they're at the moment still limits. I think if, if something like a, a, a Democrat wins a Senate seat in Texas and a Democrat wins the, the Georgia's governor's race, we're looking at a, a completely transformed politics. I'm just not sure that that's where we are quite yet. Um, if there are, it, looking back at the, at the legislature, if there are wins, let's say the House is, is taken over by Democrats, the Senate doesn't change hands as, as you predicted, but there are more women in, in that body, is, will something change then? Yeah, or, okay. I, I mean, all the research suggests the more women that are in office, legislative outcomes change, what co comes up in committee changes. Uh, you know, Democratic men for, vote correctly, but they don't bring up the right issues. Mm. And so the chamber would change with more women in it. Okay. All right, well, uh, we've covered some of the bigger policy debates, as you've just heard, this election season. And next, we're going to be looking at some unexpected players pushing voters to the polls this November. More political analysis from the mass politics profs, and that's next. I'm Callie Crossley. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And this week, we're dedicating our whole show uh, to local and national politics. And three of the mass politics profs are here with me at our satellite studios at the Boston Public Library to give their insight and analysis. Uh, joining me, Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Peter Rubitaccio on the far end, the founding dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Stonehill College and an Associate Professor of Political Science. And Rob DeLeo, an Assistant Professor of Public Policy at Bentley University. They're all contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. So let's get right back into our conversation. 
A couple of things I want to just take a short lens on Massachusetts. Uh, we were talking about what may be an impact nationally in the legislature. Locally in the legislature, it looks like there's not going to be actually that much change. In fact, there's a very interesting piece uh, by the Globe about with regard to race and gender changes, particularly race, those few folks of color in the legislature um, in the races they're in appear to be running against you know, another set of, of folks of color. So there's no expansion of those numbers. Wondering what, what you're thinking about um, the legislature as it may shift with new, new voices and people, but maybe mm -hmm. not new numbers. Does that make a difference? Well, I'm continually fascinated by the fact that the Democratic Party, the National Democratic Party, you know, when Perez came in and others, is like we sometimes backed the incumbent when we shouldn't. Uh, we haven't been as accommodating to women and people of color and women of color as we should, and they've been overt, quite overt about that. Uh, I, I do not see that uh, as reflective of, of the Massachusetts Democratic Party. And as you well know, I, I attribute that the, to they've never had to do a major party realignment mm. in the modern era. And so, you know, it, 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 the pejorative, I don't mean it as pejorative as I'm about to say it, but it's a good old boy network, and they haven't had to totally reshape the faces of the party. Now, I think Ayanna Presley sends some shockwaves that was this a one-off or is this going to be, you know, a more permanent thing? But I see the, mass, or the National Democratic Party getting a lot better about more diversity in candidate recruitment. I don't see that same thing happening at the state level. You know, Peter, I think a lot of people would be surprised in Massachusetts is one of the least diverse legislatures in the country. This is Massachusetts. Sure. I mean, what? you're the political scientist. Why? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it has a lot to do with political culture and, uh, and tradition. And uh, I'm not surprised by that. The legislature looks the way it looks every year. It rarely changes. Uh, we have a political culture, particularly in legislative politics, where loyalty is a premium. We also know that people... Uh, like their individual legislators, and we have a structure of uh, you know single-member districts, uh, geographically-based districts. Uh, the the Democratic Party in Massachusetts is both the the organization of the party and party activists, but also primary voters and legislators. Uh, it's hard to to cut through that the the thickness that surrounds. Uh, individual legislators and, and choices that are made in small geographic districts by primary voters. Incumbency brings a whole lot of benefits for legislators. And so it, there, there's always this lagging indicator. People want change. They want to see it change. But at the end of the day, because of the way that we've constructed our elections and mm -hmm. our system, it's awfully hard to unseat a legislator. Ayanna Presley's election is uh, fascinating on so many levels. It's worth remembering that it's, it's one out of nine districts, and nobody, no other district was similarly rattled. Mm. Uh, and it, it is a huge undertaking. And the, the lower you go, the more difficult it is, because it's harder to raise money, it's harder to have name recognition. And people, you know, they hate the legislature, but they really like their individual legislator. And they often just don't feel compelled to, to vote that person out in order to affect, you know, institution-wide change. And yet, um, we saw two, I would argue many people thought, two very effective uh, legislators of color, Jeffrey Sanchez and Byron Rushing, be uh, voted out, and two new people, um, Nia El Guardo in terms of the Sanchez vote seat, and then for Byron Rushing, John Santiago. So, Rob, does that 
say anything or no? What, what is it, how should we look at that from a, from a scientific viewpoint and not just a, ooh, that happened? Oh, I think it, <laughs> I think it, I think it says quite a bit. And I think the, the Aliguardo um, victory over, over Jeff Sanchez is an important one. Uh, it, it's important to bear in mind that, that, that Jeff Sanchez uh, was chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Yeah. And he was That's widely, a lot of power. widely seen as one of the more progressive chairs of Ways and Means. Certainly, and effective. Who, who, certainly yeah. relative yeah. to his yeah. predecessor, um, Brian Dempsey. And so I, I, I do think that does signal within the Massachusetts state legislature there are going to be progressive um, newcomers that are, are willing to take on the establishment. Now, whether or not that translates into policy that's going to make the legislature, legislature more representative in the coming years, I, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think those, those are victories that the legislature is taking lightly by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, so then I just want to um, get your quick response to this question. Um, Warren or Deal or Shiva? Is that a question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who's winning? Who's winning? Yeah, who, who's your, who do you predict? Based on your inside knowledge. I, I wish I could place money on it. I, <laughs> yeah. Like, thank you for yeah. the setup. Yeah. I, I warned. Uh, warned. <laughs> I do think Deal will overperform uh, a little bit because I think there is a taste for some of his Trump light, or maybe not even Trump light, like Trumpy at the state level. Mm -hmm. I, so uh, I'm going to disagree slightly with my, my learned colleague on, on that point. And I, I actually owe this to a, a recent tweet that uh, David Bernstein uh, uh, sent out the other day, which he, he noted that Deal is polling at about 30%. Yeah. And that's what Brian Herr, Herr got mm -hmm. against Ed Markey a few years back, and Herr was a less well-known figure. Mm -hmm. Deal doesn't seem to have moved the needle significantly. I thought that he would, mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't seem yet to be happening. I'm, I'm not sure. I think that... You know, obviously in this state, the Democratic incumbent is the odds-on favorite. And she's got name recognition, she's got the money, she's got the visibility. Uh, turnout's going to be higher, you know, than, than it would be in, say, a special election where a Republican might have a shot. Jeff Deal has made absolutely no attempt to appeal to the great middle in Massachusetts politics. So I'm, I'm not sure. He may, despite all the sound and fury, which is really the sum total of his campaign, I, I'm not sure that it's going to move the needle significantly. Deal or Warren? Oh, Warren, that's an easy one. Uh, um, I, I, I think it's sort of ironic that, that Deal is um, trying to run a campaign that frames Elizabeth Warren as a climber. Uh, he's suggesting that she has aspirations right. beyond the Senate seat and that she's going to run for president. I don't think most Massachusetts voters would see that as a bad thing. Uh, for many Democrats, I think the thought of Elizabeth Warren uh, crisscrossing the country in opposition to President Trump is probably appealing, <laughs> uh, even if that means she's not going to be uh, back home all that much. So I, I, don't, I don't, to echo what Peter said, I, I don't see where he, how he's going to maneuver uh, and move the needle in any way if that's, if that's the best he has on her. Okay. Uh, Gonzalez Baker. Everybody's smiling. Uh, yeah, no right. one can see you. What's your answer, yeah, political scientist? I think on the count of three, Baker. Okay. All right. Okay. And is that because... Erin is, well, is speaking... I mean, certainly speaking for me on this, I... I you know, Gonzalez, first of all, imagine trying to run uh, for governor the past couple months where most people have been focused on the events in Merrimack, uh, the Kavanaugh hearings, the Red Sox. The, the debate the other night was yeah. the, the Red Sox were beating the Yankees. You know, <laughs> except for those of us who might be moving back and forth between those two televised events, most folks were watching the Red Sox. I just okay. don't think Gonzalez has, has been able to gain traction. 
All right, I want to talk about um, uh, getting people out to vote. So first of all, we have early voting. I know I've talked with you guys about this before, and many of you do not believe that early voting does anything to add numbers of voters. Um, you know, it just makes those of us who would vote go early, but you won't get anything else. That's from the political scientist viewpoint. <laughs> I just keep saying that if you get out early and it's available and it's, it's more flexible and there's more locations, Rob DeLeo, there's got to be more in the end. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, so early voting is not what I'm excited about in this state. I, 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 I'm excited about 2020, and yeah. not because it's a presidential race, yeah. but because that's the first year we will have our automatic, automatic voter registration right. system in place. Yeah. And I think what we're finding is if you really want to move the needle, that's a great way to do it. Right. So I think it which means that you're uh, you're opted in already. You have to opt out. Actually, we don't even have to exactly. Opt out. Yeah, and, yeah. and what yeah. I would note there is, uh, Oregon implemented the country's first ABR system in 2015. Turnout increased by 90,000, mm -hmm. but of that 90,000, many of them were from low-income districts. They were younger voters. Uh, they were there were more minority voters who turned out. Um, so I think 2020 is really when we're going to see um, sort of this electoral engineering. <laughs> All right. Well, none right. of you believe in it. So let me ask this question. <laughs> but we're not yeah. against it. No, we're yeah, not no, against I it. Say you're I am all for it. No, you just think that it's not going to do that. I'm curious about, uh, again, the focus on young people that people say this midterms, they're really going to come out. Taylor Swift has gotten already, six, don't laugh, 65,000 people have signed up. All right, but here is an ad by a group called Knock the Vote, which is making fun of folks of millennials, assuming they will not vote. Let's take a listen. You'll like some meme on Instagram. If the weather is nice, maybe you could go to one of those little marches. You might even share this video on Facebook. But you won't vote. You young people never do. But I do. I do. I do. Midterms, primaries. Every single election. We'll be there, but you won't. Because we're a generation of doers. Not whiners. And we're doing great. So that ad says, and again, it's about an organization called Knock the Vote. Um, you're not showing up. We're not worried about you. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter? You know, I've watched it over and over again because I think it's really funny yeah. and I think it's truthful. Uh -huh. uh, I think uh, it, it has an element of truth. You know, it, it, it's really very effective. I, I would say, you know, I think that there are other things happening. I think the, the survivors of school shootings who've been active. Yes, will the Parkland probably, students. Right, the Parkland students will probably do more to spur youth turnout than this kind of ad. We have seen in so many cycles before, I'm, I'm now old enough to remember when MTV's Rock the Vote was going to be the thing and it was going to galvanize yeah. voters, and it, it didn't. No. Um, there, there are so many reasons why young people don't turn out. I, I, I have noticed that the interest of young people in this election is higher, looking at some recent polls, something recently, I think it was from Tufts, at least I saw someone from Tufts who was, who was using it. Uh, we're not sure yet if that's going to translate, though, into them turning out to vote. And it, it, it is an issue that happens over and over again. I think the, the Parkland issue is much more galvanizing than this ad mm. uh, because one way you, you get at young people is by, by demonstrating how the policies made by others impact you in such a visceral way right. uh, that it might spur turnout. But I, I would be surprised if we see it jump by leaps and bounds in this election. I 
that sixty-five thousand that Taylor Swift got, no, you just just I was momentary. I make a blank space. Write your name joke, but I can't. Even <laughs> okay, all right. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> having seen T Swift, um, but uh, well, in that ad, I love my favorite one: climate change. That's your problem. I'll be dead soon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, more seriously, I do think young people are wildly mobilized. They're. Um, disgusted with politics, they want to see political change, but the problem for turnout is they have to vote for a Democrat or a Republican. Right. And so they do lean left, but they, um, it, is, it isn't news to say that young people don't like either party very much. So while you're feeling mobilized, while there are these issues like school shootings, you still have to choose between one of these two parties. And I think young people get a bad rap in that way. It's not that they're not caring about politics. They don't like the shape of the current politics. So voting isn't, voting feels like the lesser of two evil for young people over and over and over again. I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And my guests are Erin O'Brien, you just heard her, of UMass Boston, Peter Ubatashio of Stonehill College, and Rob DeLeo of Bentley University. And they are three contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. They are political scientists. And we're dedicating the entire hour to discussing the 2018 midterms and other political news. Okay, well, maybe this will get people to the polls. <laughs> Uber will drive you to the polls for free on Election Day. I think this is pretty fabulous. Mm -hmm. If you put in your um, place, your, your polling place, they'll pick you up and drive you there and back for free. What's, that's got to get some more people, right? I love it. Right? Okay, cynical. Will that get more people out? I don't think it hurts. Yeah. No, again, I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't think it hurts. But yeah. I'll go back to the, the, the irony is we 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 also have. You know, things like automatic voter registry. <laughs> I don't want to sound like a bro. I know it's not, not coming until 2020, Rob. Not, <laughs> what are we going to do now? I know it's not free ice cream and no. Uber lifts. Right. But, but yes. you know, we could have put these measures in place earlier. And yes. I think if, if, right. if we want to increase voter turnout, there, there's a lot of data that suggests these things work. And, 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 and so, yeah, I think everything, every ad, every free Uber ride, you know, every perk we can add will, will have effects at the margins. But when we start to, to take on uh, uh, these big issues like voter registration, we're really going to start to see shifts in who turns out. And that includes young people. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I would, a free Uber ride isn't going to turn a person who's never voted into a person who suddenly votes. Uh, automatic voter registration, election day is a holiday. I, yeah. These are the kinds of things that where, where you create a culture where everyone is yes. voting and there's nothing you need to do in advance. Mm. Well, Uber would definitely not do it then because the numbers would be too high and they'd lose a fortune if you had these other things implemented. They probably are aware <laughs> that- They'll have that limited this, people. That's right, limited yeah. people, and it, it, it's, I'm sure you, you have to register with Uber in order to do it, right. so well, you know, they, they can communicate yeah. with you afterwards. It's good PR when they've, they've been yeah. in need of good PR. <laughs> yeah. But Lyft is also doing it. They're, they're doing, um, as I understand it, it's basically a half-off coupon, oh. but via some, um, it's Latino vote or maybe oh, Latinx okay. vote, you can get a coupon there and it's for free. Oh. And so they're trying to go to underserved communities. And so I, my colleagues are right on the empiricism here, 100%. I do think this adds nicely to a culture of turnout. Um, you know, it's a cherry on top. It's not what's going to really move big numbers. But if all of a sudden these ride shares that you use all the time or a lot of people use it are, are making voting a priority, it just there's just more messages coming in right. to say vote, vote, vote. And the lift thing about underserved communities caught my attention in a positive way. Yeah.
Well, speaking of cherry on top, Ben and Jerry's, this is interesting. <laughs> they announced a partnership with moveon.org to take Congress back flavor by flavor. I think this is fascinating. I mean, you know, they've always been pretty well known as lefties, the, the original Ben and Jerry. The, the, the company now is owned by, I don't know what other comp, uh, corporation, but they're um, supporting challengers of color around the country. Effective, interesting. I mean, I mean, we can all eat ice cream, but <laughs> but I think you know you get to know the names of these people who are running that maybe you didn't know were running. Absolutely, money. I mean, money yeah. talks, right? If they're yeah. going to support uh, uh, challengers, that then that's going to be helpful to the challengers. If they are going to run ads for these individuals or just post pictures of them on their website, which they've already done, yeah, um, that's a, that is a great way to help these folks uh, uh, win elections. Okay, so you don't think it hurts. I clicked on, and I've, I used to live in Ohio, and so I went to the Ohio first, and I learned something okay. uh, about them. You know, I didn't order the ice cream I want to, but you know, <laughs> like, yeah, it can't hurt. It's good business, and you know, why any way you can get names out for candidates of colors and challengers when everything is set up against them is great. Do I think it'll move to you borrow Rob's um, term, move the needle much? No. Is it uh, a positive inducement in civic culture? Yeah. Well, you guys have the history. Has, has there ever been an, a gimmick that got people something, you know, on the order of a free ride or free ice cream or something yeah, that I mean, got people to vote? Oh, sure. back in the well, day. That's, <laughs> that's illegal. That's illegal. <laughs> you didn't say <laughs> recent. <laughs> I said following a legal route. Was there uh, anything? Okay. That's no, that's work. <laughs> I don't think so. I think what voter turnout was very high in this country in the 19th and early 20th century, it was also very corrupt. And so when you remove that from the scene, first of all, it's far less interesting. And, uh, no, I mean, there isn't a, a person who wants to vote has never had trouble getting a ride to the polls. The parties will send someone to get you. Mm. So if you say, I'm, I'm going to vote for this, your, your candidate, I can't get there, that's no problem. There's always been a free ride if you're a frequent voter and then the parties know how you're going to vote. So you know, I agree with Aaron. The more that we can do to create a culture of involvement and civic action and voting, the better off we all are. I, but in a country this size, with, with the complexity of our elections still, without some of these other devices, uh, I don't think it significantly moves the needle. Well, I don't want to be uh, Debbie Downer, but um, I believe you all consistently <laughs> say that only 20% of folks will turn out for midterm elections, that that's about where we're at, which is really pathetic. Are you, do, does it look that way now or no? Nobody wants right, to say. Right, right. No. <laughs> Just the final question, because it right. could be a depressing way to end. But I, yeah. yes, I, I guess is. <laughs> you know, I, I suspect that there is, there are greater levels of interest mm -hmm. in politics as a result of the Trump election. There is certainly uh, a passion out there that I haven't seen uh, in following politics for a long time, and there's such high levels of disgust with the affairs in Washington D.C., but specifically with this White House. I don't yet know if that's going to translate into a tidal wave of new participants okay. in a midterm election. It may in two years if the president runs for re-election and there's a, a force against him, but uh, it, it is w without having created institutionally automatic voter registration where everyone knows you just show up on election day and you cast a ballot. Uh, we, we we put up impediments, and then we come up with lots of reasons to defend those impediments, even though 
if you were creating the system from scratch, you would say, uh, in a democracy, you want to create a system where it's just easy for people to vote, period. But having, having lived with these impediments for a long time, there's now a whole body of literature, and many local town clerks can find lots of reasons why you should never change the system as it exists. I think that's the biggest obstacle to an increase in voter participation. 20%, Rob? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you, you may see uh, uh, an uptick. I, I don't think it's going to be a, a wave. I don't think it's going to be dramatic. But again, I, you know, if we, if we look at the primaries as sort of a, a predictor of what's going to happen, and if we look at this state, there, there's clearly an energy among progressives in this right. state. And I think what happened on the, 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 in the primaries was exciting for a lot of people. I think they're hungry. Uh, uh, to continue that into... But the percentage was still low. Yeah, exactly. The percentage of registered voters exactly. who, who, who so. actually voted was still low. I think it's going to go up. Okay. Yeah. 21%. Uh, well, well <laughs> yeah. notice I didn't say a number. Yeah. Um, but in part because I was wrong, I thought turnout, uh, you know, the um, Tuesday after Labor Day, I really thought it was going to be historic lows, yeah. and it wasn't. It was high. So based on that... We're going to go crazy. I mean, way over 20, like 25. Well, we, will, we will know soon, and uh, you all will be back in these seats after the election Very to cool. assess what actually did happen by the 21 or 22%, perhaps, the blue wave that Aaron <laughs> is predicting at this point. Right. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining me. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Aaron O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Peter Rubitaccio is the founding dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Stonehill College and an associate professor of political science. And Rob DeLeo is an assistant professor of public policy at Bentley University. You can find more from the Mass Politics Profs on their blog, www.masspoliticsprofs.org. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineers are Doug Sugarts and Steve Barassi. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.